I'd like for you to turn to the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to read beginning at verse 14. The remaining, the uh, verses through verse 30. So it would be Matthew 25. Verse, verses 14 through 30. This parable of the talents is set in the conversation of Jesus concerning the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 14, For it's just like a man about to go out to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went in and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant, slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master." The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to every one who has shall be more given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away, and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unlike some of his um, earlier novels, John Steinbeck's novel, Travels with Charlie, is an easy reading kind of travelogue, which is a story of his travels across America in a self-contained camper with only his dog, Charlie, for company. In his early years, John Steinbeck established himself as a best-selling, Pulitzer Prize-winning author who was able to weave together the complex passions that hundreds of floods of migrants felt and lived out who poured into the Central Valley of California during the 
1930s, in the time of the Great Depression, some of you have read uh, of Mice and Men and Grapes of Wrath. But later on, John Steinbeck suspected that he had lost touch with the pulse of America, and so he decided that he would try to rediscover this great country and the people who made it great because of their strength and vigor. And so with his dog, Charlie, they set out from New York and wove their way across America to the shores of the Pacific Northwest, down the coast of California, across the deserts of the Southwest, and finally full circle through the South back to Manhattan. And he had no itinerary, traveled incognito, and he just kind of drifted along. And everywhere he went... When he would stop, whether it would be for a, you know, to camp out a week in a very pleasant place or just to eat lunch in some desert truck stop, he talked with people and he listened to them, carefully recording their impressions. He was hoping that the real picture of America would emerge. And one of the most profound s- statements in the book is the response of the people to Steinbeck's gypsy way of life. He said, everywhere he went, everybody said, I wish we could get in that camper and go with you. And he'd tell them, he said, well, I don't even know where I'm going. I have no purpose. I'm just kind of drifting around. They'd say, well, that's what makes it so exciting. And when he would ask them, uh, are you unhappy where you are? They'd always say no. But then they'd go on to say, we just wish, it just seems so wonderful If we could just get in some, you know, get in a camper like that and just travel around everywhere. And his sad conclusion was this, that everybody in America wishes he were someone else, living somewhere else, doing something else. And I think he's probably right. I think that he expressed in general a kind of a feeling of of dissatisfaction that pervades our society and that robs us of a sense of contentment and fulfillment. And while I agree with that generally, I must say quickly that I I think I know a lot of people on the other hand who wouldn't trade places with anybody, anywhere, anytime. And being aware of the difference there it's raised a question I need to find an answer for. That's the, this, and it's this question. What is the difference? What is the secret of the difference between this vast number of people over here who wishes they were someone else, living somewhere else, doing something else, and this group of people over here who wouldn't trade places with anybody? And I think that this parable that is before us helps us find some clues to the answer. First, I think that the people who are successful and contented and who feel fulfilled in life are people who have come to terms with themselves. That is, the people who have been able to accept themselves, their talents, their gifts, and their abilities. I live with a growing amazement at the number of people and the kind of people who feel that they just don't have a talent worth developing, or they just don't have anything worth contributing to life. A growing number of people like that. My professor at Southwestern, 
was Ken Chafin, professor in evangelism. And he said one day while he was teaching in Southwestern, uh, he, he got a book from a publisher that the publisher wanted him to read. And so he was just kind of thumbing through it. He didn't have time to read it. And he, and he noticed in the middle of the book a blank page. Page 67 had nothing on it. 66 was filled out and 68 had, you know, it was right. But 67 was a blank page. And he said, I'm just kind of fuming over that, worrying about that. When I heard a knock at the door, he said, when I went to the door, there stood this young man wouldn't talk to me. He said, I invited him in, and when, we, when he sat down, he said, I was making a big deal. Have you ever seen anything like this? You know, a, a, a mistake at the publisher, blank page 67. He said, I went on like that for a while. He said, finally, the young man interrupted me very seriously and said, I think I know how page 67 feels. He said, I was taken back with the boy's response because he came from one of the most prominent families in Southern Baptist life. His father was a pastor. His brothers and sisters were very talented and successful. So he said, I spent a great deal of time that day trying to tell him how he should feel about himself, how, he should, how, how good he should feel about himself. He said, later on that weekend, Chafin said that he spoke at a retreat for a large church out in central Texas, and he said there was this great number of people there, dynamic young men and women. And he said, I told about this young boy. Came to my office, page 67. And he said, during the break of the retreat, 12 people came up to me and said, I know exactly how that boy feels. And he said, everybody who said that to me was attractive and gifted and talented and outwardly seemed successful, but inside there was this emptiness, this this feeling of insecurity, unsure, blank pages. And I may be speaking to some people this morning who feel just like that. Now you may, feel, you may be successful, but you feel unsuccessful. You may be talented and gifted, but you feel like you have nothing to contribute. And I think there's some, some, some things that are basic to that. Well, you see, we're all born into this life with an ego that is as fragile as an egg a burning desire to be somebody. And I think it's more than just a desire to be somebody. I think it's a God-given need to be needed. To feel that life is more than a cipher. That it's more than 70 years, a 70-year exercise in futility. And we've all prayed the prayer of the psalmist. Establish thou the work of my hands. Yes, the work of my hands. Establish thou it. Which means, I think... God saved me from having to feel that it wouldn't have mattered if I'd never lived. When I was preaching revival in Kerrville about a month ago, they put me up in this nice, this gorgeous motel. I was telling the early service this morning, one of the good things about preaching to former students or church members, they always try to impress you. So they put me up in this nice motel called the End of the Hills. It's a very rustic and beautiful place. And one wall of my motel room was made out of native stone, big, huge boulders put together. And I noticed when I checked in that the people who were there before me had carved their initials in the walls. They were just covered with people's initials. Not graffiti, dirty language, just people's initials. And I had this overwhelming urge to, to, to carve my initials on the walls. Now, I was, I was you know, resisting the urge because 
In the fourth grade, my teacher got me up in the front of the class, having caught me scratching my initials on my desk, and made me recite a little ditty like this. Fool's names, like monkey faces, are always seen in public places. And I didn't want to be a monkey or a fool, so I was doing my best to resist scratching my initials on the walls of that room. Okay, I'll confess, I did it. (laughs) I've got to get it off my chest. I got out my key and I scratched my initials. And we've fallen into the trap, I think, of thinking that our worth is subject to a confirmation that can be confirmed or withheld by a competitive society. By that I mean that in our desire to be somebody, we have fallen into the trap of thinking that my worth is determined by society or a worldly standard, that the balance are still out and, the, and, and my society or my world is going to decide whether I'm a value or not. It's a dangerous way to think. Let me give you some symptoms of that kind of thought style. I just have one talent. He has five. She has two. I'm not as good as she is. I'm not as good as he is. I mean, compared to him, I'm a nobody. It's the kind of thinking that thinks this way that a person's worth is determined by the kind of job he lands. And I know some people who work, who have worked for 10 or 15 years in a job they absolutely hate and just kind of burns a little hole in their stomach every time they go to work. But they can't quit. They can't, why, their value or their worth is determined by the status of that job. It's the kind of thinking that, that says this, that the real people of value and worth are the people who are able to make a lot of money. So I'm out of any value. I'm I'm not important because I'm not able to make a lot of money. It's a dangerous way to think. Does that mean that a school teacher who spends years in preparation and years in classrooms molding young people's lives is a failure because she can't make over $20,000 a year? Does that mean that because we live in a society that's so confused that it heaps more money upon a punk rock star for one concert than it gives to a physician who has dedicated his life to medical research and that he should change his vocation? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that nobodiness cannot be permanently disarmed by achieving somebodiness in a competitive society, in other words, somebodiness is not achieved, not measured by a worldly standard. It begins when I understand that my gift and my talent and my ability is special and important and needed. And it goes beyond that. And so will I. Those people who are successful and who feel success are contented are the people who are able to develop their talent to its fullest extent. You see, it's not what you have that really counts. It's not how many talents you have that's important. It's what you do with it. It's how you use it. Now, you would expect in the New Testament that the underdog would get some sympathy. You know, I mean, here's this one talented guy, and you'd expect that there'd be a lot of sympathy directed his way, but you won't find that in this parable. 
what you find is that this one talented man is condemned. And the basis of his condemnation is his failure to do the best he could with what he had. Rabbi Sushana, the great rabbi, Jewish rabbi in New York City said, when I stand before God, God's not going to ask me, Sushna, why weren't you Moses? When I stand before God, God is going to ask me, Sushna, why weren't you Sushna? So that when you and I stand before God, He's not going to ask us why we didn't have five talents. He's going to ask us why didn't we become everything He gifted us to become. And I think there's some things that are basic to the development of one's gift. One thing is that he has to have a proper understanding of God. Did you see what he, how he thought, what he thought about God? He said, the owner of this talent, he, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. Now, where did he get that? Where did he get the idea that the owner was a hard man? Did he get it because... He had some bitterness in his own heart because his peers were more talented than he. Did, did he have that anger to begin with? I know some people like that. I know some people who are just furious toward God because their neighbor across the street and down the street is more talented than they, and they feel like God has given them a raw deal in life. Does that sound like anybody you know? And then he said, not only did he conceive of, of the owner as being a hard man, he conceived of him being a taker rather than a giver. He said, Who's, who gathers where he didn't scatter and reaps where he didn't sow. Do you know what he meant by that? Well, he was saying, what you have, you didn't earn, you just take from somebody else. You've, you've let somebody else sow and you go and reap it. Where did he get that idea that God was like that? Where did he ever get the idea that God was a taker rather than a giver? I'm here to tell you that God is a giver whose great desire is, young people, for you to become everything you were gifted to be and for you to develop the talent to its fullest measure. He wants that more than anything else. And before we are able to develop these talents, there's some barriers we're going to have to overcome. One of those barriers is fear. He said, there it is, I was afraid. Really, I think I should say we need to learn how to manage our fears because I don't think you'll ever overcome fear. It's like temptation. It'll always be with you. But we need to learn how to manage our fears because they are able to distort and, and, and give a wrong perspective to our problems. There's a tragic event in Israel's life that proves that. And they stood at the threshold of this marvelous land that God had for them. And so they sent out a reconnaissance group of, ten, of 12 people. Ten of them came back and they were so afraid, they said, we can't go in there. Why, those people are like giants and we're like grasshoppers. And so their fear paralyzed them and sent them wandering in the wilderness for the rest of their life, never accomplishing what they could have accomplished. 
fear always paralyzes, and it's a terrible emotion to mix with our problems. Our list of fears is endless. The fear of rejection, which causes us to accept the lifestyles and the values of the group when it means that we have to com compromise our own. The fear of failure that paralyzes us and, and keeps us from launching out into something new. Augustine said, we venture or we vegetate, we risk or we rust, and, and, and fear causes us to be paralyzed. The fear of missing out on life, which drives people to new experiences for fear that they'll wind up on the wrong side of 30, not having really lived. They're the people who are afraid that there's a disco they've never danced in. There's a restaurant they've never eaten in. There's a ski resort they've never vacationed. There's a fad they've never tried. The fear of commitments. Um, a columnist of the Boston Globe, Ellen Goodman, tells about this friend of hers who, who never makes a commitment. And his, his, his uh, explanation is this. He said, you know, people who make commitments are like folks who, you know, life is like a big buffet line, and they're like folks who get all this food at the first and, you know, ordinary stuff. And when they get to the end of the line, you know, they find some food much more interesting, but their tray is full. Does that ever happen to you? You know, if you get all this stuff up here, when you get to the end of the line, there's just something wonderful, but your tray's already filled. He said, the guy said, you know, he said, I'm just keeping my options open. And, and Ellen said, no, what he's doing is he's coming to the end of his line with an empty plate. You see, we can't live our lives in fear. I mean... What do you do with your fears? Well, you talk to the Lord about them. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus counseled people with their, about their fears? Twelve times He introduced a conversation with these words, Be not afraid, fear not. It's amazing to me why this man, if he was afraid to do something with his talent, why didn't he tell the owner about it when he received it? And there's a third bar second barrier that we have to overcome, and that's pure old laziness. Now, this may sound a little harsh from the shepherd, but I want to tell you the main reason why people never become what they were gifted to become is that they're too flippin' lazy. And the reason why... I have so many dreams for First Baptist Church of Durant. The reason why we never attain to those dreams is because we're too lazy to pay the price to achieve them. And I'm speaking this morning to seniors, and to, and, but to us all, that if we're willing to pay the price, the sky is the limit to what we can achieve. You know what God thinks about a lazy man? He thinks he's wicked. Did you notice that? Thou wicked and slothful, lazy slave. Now I want you to find any time in the New Testament where Jesus ever called somebody wicked. Not the prodigal son, not the woman taken in adultery, but to the man who did nothing with his talent, he called him wicked. One last thought, please. The people who are successful and feel contentment in life 
are the people who have committed to God their gift for Him to use for others. Our relationship with God is personal and not ritual. And germane to every relationship is accountability. I have a personal relationship with my children and therefore I'm accountable to them. They have the right to expect me to always be consistent. I have a personal relationship with my wife, therefore I am accountable to her. And I am accountable to defend and and protect and honor her just as I promised. And our relationship to God is a personal one, therefore we are accountable to God. And what that means is this, that you will never be fulfilled and contented and successful in life until you give back to God your talent for Him to maximize in usefulness. I need to say that again. That the people who have really achieved the measure of success that this parable calls the master's joy are the people who have taken their gift and have applied it in the ways that God can bless. Now I think there's a couple of things that are essential here at that point. One is that a person has to find a place, a support system, where that talent can be discovered and developed and distributed. And that place is the church. I've been a member of the church as long as I can remember. I was brought up in a church. And I'm convinced that here in the fellowship of the church, I, in, the, in that group, I discovered who I really am. And what I am, I found out in the church, not in a classroom, not in a vocational counselor's office, not in some kind of of vocational testing or measurement, but I found out in the church who I am and what I have and what my potential in life is. And I must say to you, young people who are graduating, that you find in this life this support system called the church, wherever you wind up in life. And you plant your life there because it is within the church that you discover who you really are and what you were meant to be. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you with a prophetic message, when the body of elders laid their hands upon you. And what he means there is this. Don't neglect that gift you discovered in the fellowship of the church as that gift was found by those who loved you, nurtured you, cared for you. It's within the church that we discover that gift. And it's within the church that that gift is developed, that support system. I heard a preacher tell about, he had one of these airplane stories, all preachers have. You know, I was traveling, I was flying somewhere. He said, I was flying across the country somewhere. He said, it was a crowded uh, flight, and he, and he said, I, I was in a center seat in a 
uh, in a section of three seats. And he said, I, was, I got out my little commentaries on Ephesians. I was going to work on my Wednesday night prayer service. But he said, the guy sitting next to me started talking. He said, Is it, are you a preacher? He said, you believe that stuff? He said, that, that must be that you're a preacher. You don't believe that stuff, do you? He said, yeah, really, as a matter of fact, I do. I believe it. You know? He said, I didn't really want to talk with him. didn't want to argue with him. He said, I need to study. So he said, I just kind of ignored him. But he said, he wouldn't let me alone. He said, oh, he said, you know, he said, I, that, that's that, you know, the church. What, what is the church? He said, you know, I'm, we, I, I, I'm a competitive man. He said, out here in this competitive world where I live, we don't have any business for the church. He said, what good is the church? He said, I couldn't let that one go. He said, so I asked him, he said, I said to him, I said, uh, you have friends? The guy said, yeah, he said, I got some friends. He said, we're all kind of, you know, it's dog eat dog out where I, you know, big, big time. And he said, "Uh, you have children? He said, yeah, he said, I've got a 12-year-old daughter. He said, would your friends be able to help you if your 12-year-old daughter was dying of leukemia? And he said, the guy's kind of shrugged his shoulder. He said, well, I guess that's probably one of our weaknesses. What my friend was doing was driving home the fact that it is in this group where I grew up, where you grew up, where we have discovered people that really care and people who are interested in what we are and who we are and what we have. And it is through the church that these gifts and talents is, are to be distributed. I must say this. I love this community. I've spent seven years of my life here. And, and I am committed to the success and the progress of this community. But you know, I see folks out in this community who are so gifted and are so talented, who are giving their gifts and their talents to every community organization and and every... And there's nothing wrong with that. But the church is missing those talents and gifts. Those same people. Those same people could be using those gifts and talents in the church, God's way. And I almost covet them when I see all this energy and this this, uh, enthusiasm and these marvelous uh, gifts of leadership uh, being uh, used by these people out in this community. And I almost covet just a little bit of that energy to be applied in the church. And I'm deeply committed to the fact that when a person discovers his gift and it's developed in the fellowship of caring, godly people, that he's better equipped to minister in his community so that the organizations don't go begging that it's strengthened by the fact that these same people are gifted in the church 
and they're using that talent in the church and that makes them more effective in the community. Because did you notice that the reward of faithfulness in the use of your talent is more work. Isn't that amazing? I know a guy, I asked him one time, he said, well, I asked him, what are you going to do when you get out of college? He said, I'm going to go into the service. He said, I'm like a career out of it. I said, why? He said, because I can retire when I'm 48. And the whole plan, strategy for his life was he wanted something where he could quit earlier. But notice this, that the people who have found the joy of the Master are the people who have been gifted with more work. Michael Todd was killed. Michael Todd was a business entrepreneur, but probably known more by the fact that he was one of Elizabeth Taylor's husbands. When he died, Paul Harvey said this about him. He said, We do not have a choice in the length of our days but we do have a say-so in their depth and breadth. I'm here to tell you that you don't know how long you have to live. Nobody does. And you don't have a say-so in the matter. But you do have a say-so in how deep and how broad that life will be. And it begins by understanding that you're special because God has gifted you. And you're going to take that gift and you're going to develop to the fullest extent. And then you're going to offer it to God and say to Him, everything I have because he said it's the master's money. Everything I have belongs to you. Now I want you to take my life and maximize its effect. And that is the secret of success. Let's pray together. Father, my heart goes out today to those of us who feel so unhappy and dissatisfied, discontented. When we look around, we see so many people who are better than we, more talented. And Lord, I pray for a discovery this morning of our gift, our talent. We'll see how special we are. That we'll begin, Father, to apply and develop what we have that we can give to you that which you could bless because I pray in Jesus name I invite you this morning to a prayerful consideration of three invitations an invitation to come this morning and to receive life's most precious gift the gift of eternal life Paul says that salvation is this, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance turning away from one life 
toward God and trusting in Jesus as Savior. Have you ever trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation? An invitation this morning for those of us who are already Christians, but who are not really becoming what God has meant for them to become. You want to rededicate, recommit, whatever the word is. Just say to God before others, I want to give my life to God so He can maximize its effect. And there may be some this morning who need to join the church. This support group where what we are is discovered. What we can be is revealed. So I'm inviting you to do that. In the name of the Lord Jesus, while we stand, while we sing.